here with Dr. Eric Crossan, one of our pediatrics clerkship directors at UC Davis School of Medicine, and we're going to be exploring UCD 43 symptom number 16, ear pain, also known as otalgia. Eric, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us where you grew up, went to college, medical school, and trained in residency, as well as what your roles are here at UC Davis currently? I would be happy to. Um, so again, my name is Eric Crossan. Um, I'm a general pediatrician and here in the Department of Pediatrics at the School of Medicine. And as you mentioned, I'm a co-clerkship uh, instructor for pediatrics. Um, and here at the School of Medicine, I'm also director of our tribal health um, prime pathway, which is um, starting this year. Uh, I think the other questions were about sort of background. And I um, grew up in Oregon, uh, just outside of Portland. And I did my undergrad at Stanford University, um, did major in human biology, and that's especially where sort of the interest in medicine and healing kind of solidified. I ended up at UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina for medical school. And then uh, for residency, for pediatric residency, um, back to Portland, Oregon, old home environment for um, three years as a resident and one year as a chief resident. Following um, chief resident year, I ended up getting a job at UCSF and working in the general pediatric clinic there, working with residents and students um, before coming over here to UC Davis um, when my wife and I both found work here uh, in the Department of Pediatrics. Oh, I did not know you worked at UCSF for a while. How long were you there? Uh, two years. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Well, we're glad to have snatched you away from the mm -hmm. clutches of UCSF. <laughs> no offense to UCSF. And what are your favorite things to do outside of medicine, pediatrics? Well, I, I think that I'm a bit of a, a dabbler. I don't have like one like hobby or go-to activity in particular, unless you count um, raising two kids, um, which is where I spend a lot of my time. And I have found that uh, you know, more of the like kind of fun activities that I've gotten into in the last few years have centered around that family time together. So um, most recently spending a lot of time sort of relearning tennis and teaching tennis um, to our, our five and seven year old, which is a lot of fun um, and kind of tricky. And I'm having to get good with my left hand so I can uh, support the the five-year-old is she swinging there on the right side <laughs> and also my my seven-year-old's a lefty too so um i've been trying to model for him how to how to swing the racket so i guess that's a new talent is uh playing tennis with both hands <laughs> excellent so you ready to dive in yeah here we go <laughs> eric uh, <laughs> all right that's 
A three-year-old boy is brought in to see his pediatrician by his dad, who reports that he was in good health and up-to-date on all vaccinations until five days ago when he caught an upper respiratory infection from his older sister. He had rhinorrhea that was clear in consistency along with a cough. He was doing fine until about one and a half days ago when he felt warm and was found to have a tympanic temperature of 39 degrees centigrade and began complaining that his right ear hurt. He also had several loose bowel movements, Dad thought probably around three, yesterday. But while his appetite wasn't great, he was still eating and drinking and didn't have any nausea, vomiting, headache, or other systemic complaints. Last night he woke up several times crying and tugging on his ear, and Dad decided to bring him in to be seen. Does this sound like a familiar case to you, Eric, at all? Have you seen, seen a patient like this before? I feel like you've been spying on my clinic template or my charts <laughs> because, yes, this is a, a very common scenario that comes up in the, the general pediatric clinic. Huh. And in, in terms of clinical reasoning, I know an experienced clinician like yourself, uh, tends to think of things in patterns. Mm-hmm. Are there any that fit here? Meaning, what do you think is the most likely diagnosis right off from what you've heard, and why is that that you're thinking that way? Well, I think you're, you're right, and whether for good or for ill, um, over time um, we definitely um, hear these like first few sentences that the parent shares with us or we read from the you know, nurse triage encounter and start to think about what what most likely is going on. And in this case, it really um, strikes me that this is a kiddo who sounds like they had a cold, um, but now they're having this like fever and ear pain that are standing out. And that fits with a a pattern where I've seen a lot of kids end up having acute otitis media um, or an ear infection um, as a result. And, and does the does the loose stools fit into that at all in any way, or are we looking at two different things going on? Hard to know, and um, certainly we don't expect the ear infection itself to cause a loose stool. Uh, maybe the treatment for the ear infection could cause that. Um, so if this was like a follow-up for the ear pain, you'd want to know that. But I think that given, given that... Um, you know, story that sounds like there's an acute viral upper respiratory infection, it's entirely possible that the diarrhea is part of whatever that viral syndrome is. And I feel like certainly with COVID, um, we're seeing more and more of the GI symptoms coming along with the, the respiratory symptoms. But there's any number of those respiratory viruses that could give you some GI symptoms, whether it's diarrhea or not. It's certainly lots of other things that give toddlers diarrhea, <laughs> co-infection with another virus, um, eating way too many starchy snacks like the animal crackers and oh, really? um, huh. things, and getting toddlers diarrhea from, from diet is really common. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was not aware of that. I guess we kept our kids away from, we have a couple of grown-ups now. <laughs> yes. Good. They never had the starchy yeah. diarrhea. Yeah, good for you. I feel like it either leads to diarrhea or it's, uh, as one attending in our clinic likes to say, it's like adding concrete mix and they end up constipated. So I like oh. the uh, fresh produce is a good, a good way to go. <laughs> goodness, they didn't have that either. <laughs> All right, so we like to train our students and residents not to anchor on mm-hmm. a diagnosis to potentially be victims of so-called premature premature closure and make the wrong diagnosis. In this case, what are other things you might ask the family to make sure the care this child receives is the best care? Yeah, I think that um, 
having an open mind is really important. And, and I think in a, a scenario like this, it's really common for the parent to even come in anchored that this is a ear infection. So I, I generally start with really acknowledging um, what it is that they think could be going on. And then I try really hard to make a statement that says, um, we're going to investigate that and make sure that um, we don't miss anything that could be going on. And I feel like, you know, saying that out loud really helps me get in the right mindset um, to keep an open mind as I ask my HPI questions and um, think about my physical exam. As far as, you know, making sure that we keep an open mind with the, the HPI questions, I think that uh, we we want to think about not just what else could this be besides an ear infection, but like if this is an ear infection, is it a ear infection that could be more complicated because the child is uh, at an increased risk for complications or having more severe infection? Um, so I think that thinking of those categories of questions is important. So things that might affect illness severity or that might affect what's on our list with the differential. The parent told us a lot already. That's really helpful so that, you know, um, exposure to the older sibling who's going to bring all sorts of viruses into the home and other uh, pathogens. I think also that, you know, progression, the order of the illness is really key. They they started by telling us about the, the cold um, rather than that started out with the ear pain. I would want to know things too, like, you know, has this child um, been closely supervised? Um, kids will put all sorts of things into different orifices of their body. <laughs> and so um, knowing about supervision is really important because a foreign body in the ear um, is, is uh, one thing that you don't want to miss. <laughs> it should be obvious. Um, I think also, um, you know, there are certainly a long list of differential diagnoses for otalgia. And certain exposures, whether it's like swimming or water exposure, traumatic history, so from blunt trauma, are important things to be asking about um, so you can get a sense of um, what could be going on. I also like to ask questions up front about how the child seems in general to the parents to try to gauge how sick they seem to the parent before I make my physical assessment of how sick or not sick they seem. Got it. And are there things that you potentially would ask about that put them at higher risk for otitis media? Definitely. A lot of that um, you might glean from the chart for a patient that you know well. You know, you're asking me, is this a common thing that comes up for me? And I, I have the luxury as a primary care pediatrician that I almost always have the patient's records available to me through the EMR. But this is a really common um, scenario in urgent care clinics too um, that may um, not have a long-term relationship with the patient. And so getting some past medical history is really critical. Um, and some things that we'd want to know about our immunization history, um, the dad told us about that. We'd also want to know, you know, is this a child um, who has or had a cleft lip and palate that might have been repaired? So something really big like that might really affect um, what's going on. And then I think that it's, it's uncommon, but um, making sure that it's not a child who's affected by immunodeficiency is really important. So even a, a sort of straightforward diagnosis like acute otitis media um, and the management of it might be really different for a child who's affected by an immunodeficiency. And here at the tertiary care center, we might see that a bit more often. And this is 
probably kind of a basic question, mm-hmm. but how common is acute otitis media? Oh, it's really common. And, you know, I think my sense of it is, and I'm not a medical historian by any stretch, um, there have been a lot of efforts made with public health to reduce how um, common it is and to reduce the incidence. Um, but even with interventions like um, the routine immunization schedule that target some of the pathogens that cause otitis media, it's still like four out of every five kids end up having an ear infection, uh, acute otitis media at some point in the first you know, five, six years of life. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. So if you're talking to this dad about this particular patient, is there any kind of like average you'd expect it like you know oh yeah every six months or this kid gets an infection once a year or or is it like if they're getting it every six weeks that you begin to worry what's the threshold there since it's so common yeah well and you know as far as like being common that's like really that number of like you know 80 percent four out of five is once in that that childhood that they'll have it and recurrent ear infections are, are certainly less common for an individual. I think that it it really depends on when they start getting their ear infections. And, you know, we talked about some of the past medical history up front, and that's really relevant to have they had ear infections before, when was their first one. If they start like early on six months or even earlier, um, first year of life with ear infections, that's really a strong predictor that they're, they're likely to have them continue to, to mm-hmm. come back. And then family history is really important too. Um, so families that have um, a lot of ear infections that affected parents, but especially siblings, those kids are really at an increased likelihood that they might have multiple ear infections. And as far as like numbers, I would say that like it's it's really common for for me to see a kid who gets like a ear infection once a year in the first three years. I don't know, maybe like a quarter of the time. That's a story that that mm-hmm. pans out. Or I don't have the data in front of me, but it, it feels like it's it's common. And as far as like if they have them every six weeks, that is is way too too frequent, and we'd worry about some some sort of underlying predisposing factors that are causing them to to keep having them, mm-hmm. and we'd want to take you know, additional steps with our management to try to prevent, um, which I'm sure we could talk about later. <laughs> Got it. Sure. Yeah. One of the things I was wondering about is, is this kid is three, right? So maybe can give some history, but what, what sort of helps you differentiate between just like, this is pain on the outside of the ear versus the inside of the ear? Um, is it truly ear pain that's the middle ear versus something else? Are there questions you ask if the kid's old enough to talk to you? Certainly if the kid is old enough to, to talk. Um, and I think really kind of like the school age child is when we can start to, to zero in on like where, where it is actually hurting them with our history um, more accurately. You know, they can more reliably point with one finger to where it is on their head or in or around the ear that it hurts. Um, and, and then, of course, like adolescents aren't immune to ear infections, even if it's less common. And they can often describe it pretty clearly where it is that it hurts. I think the other thing is like, asking how it hurts. And with a three-year-old, it's really hard to know because they're going to say anything that's uncomfortable, it hurts. And and so we wouldn't be able to, for the, you know, toddler or infant, be able to distinguish between, you know, pressure or fullness from that sharp, um, you know, pain that we associate with uh, acute otitis media. So it's, it's really challenging. And so often parents will come in assuming that tugging on the ear 
is like a clear sign that there's ear pain. And, and it, interestingly, it's really not that reliable um, as a, mm-hmm. as a like indicator of, of whether or not there's truly ear pain or something else going on. That's fascinating because mm-hmm. when I was a medical student, I, from my days as a medical student, I seem to recall being taught that like the kid comes in and they've been tugging on their ear, you're thinking that it's an ear infection of some kind. Yeah, I think that I, I remember that too. And um, it was, I think, not until my pediatric residency that I really learned that that's certainly not always the case. Um, and I, you know, having kids of my own now know that they mess with their ears all the time. Um, and it was part of a normal development to explore your body and um, they'll put their fingers all sorts of places and You've even had times where it was clear that a kid kept doing stuff to their ear and it was that their hair was tickling their ear and they you know, might have benefited from a haircut or something like that. Certainly uh, not specific to, to this being an ear infection. Worth following through on to really make sure that that's not what's going on. Got it, yeah. got it. Well, you'll be happy to know that the rest of the history was really pretty negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so for all your questions, um, there was no, there weren't a lot of ear infections, I think one a year ago or something like that, and no history of uh, immunocompromised conditions. Um, as we already heard, there is the sibling in the house who had a URI. Um, so what's your problem representation for this patient at this juncture from what you've heard? Yeah, so I would say that this sounds like um, an otherwise healthy three-year-old uh, male with acute onset of unilateral otalgia in the context of uh, upper respiratory infection. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a nice brief problem yeah. representation. Yeah. And if uh, any of my PICU colleagues were here, they'd want to make sure I was saying that they were non-toxic. <laughs> <laughs> Although our, our history suggested that, I guess, with the kids eating yeah. and everything. Right. right. So it sounds like... Your physical exam mm-hmm. is going to be crucial in looking at this, but you mentioned like foreign body in the yeah. ear. Um, but so, what are like the most common causes of ear pain? Because one of the things we're trying to do on these UCD forty three podcasts and throughout the curriculum is to teach the students and even our residents to think about common things are common mm-hmm. and look for patterns that don't fit the common things. Mm-hmm. But what, you know, if you're listing common causes of ear pain, what are those? Well, probably one, two, and three are going to be acute otitis media, um, otitis media with effusion. And then I think, you know, it might be a tie between otitis externa, uh, swimmer's ear, and just like sort of uh, eustachian tube dysfunction. And then after otitis externa? Mm-hmm. So after otitis externa, um, you do think about things like foreign bodies and other infections of the skin of the ear. Certainly you can get, you know, furuncles or cellulitis from scratching, especially a kid who might have eczema. And that's again where your past medical history can really come into play. And and I think that, you know, beyond those things, you start getting into more zebra territory, um, especially in the general pediatric clinic. It is certainly possible to have things like tumors um, that grow in the ear. Those are really rare, um, but possible. And then I think it's important that, like we talked about that spectrum of severity of illness, um, but there could be a complication of the otitis media that's really what's causing the ear pain. So you think about things like mastoiditis as, as one complication. And yeah, I think that there's other complications too, like bullous meringitis, where the infection in the middle ear is actually causing a really acute severe pain of the tympanic membrane itself. There's really like dozens of things that could cause it. 
I, I mentioned this up front too, but um, just coming back to, to the trauma history and knowing that um, kids can have barrow trauma from you know driving up to the mountain, being on an airplane, mm-hmm. um, but also like worrying about that blunt trauma. Um, that's um, some, something that can happen with non-accidental trauma. I.e. child abuse. Exactly. And that's, you know, not not common, but certainly more common than anyone really feels comfortable with and an important item to always have on your differential diagnosis, uh, especially if you're seeing physical exam findings that don't match what you'd expect to see. Got it. Yeah. As you're about to, I'll give you the exam in a second, but as you're about to examine this kid, based on your the history we got mm-hmm. from the dad and what I've given you so far, what would you be expecting to find mm-hmm. And what else would you be looking for to help rule out some of these other things that you mentioned that are on the differential diagnosis? Yeah. So on exam, I'm expecting to see a three-year-old who doesn't want me to examine their ear. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I will, um, you know, be anticipating in advance um, that there might be some resistance and planning my approach uh, carefully. And so I won't go straight to that ear that is uh, affected, even though that may be what the parent wants um, and where we really need to be to kind of come to what the ultimate diagnosis is, I would be starting um, just with more general observation, trying to tell if that kid looks toxic. Um, Are they really slumped in their parent's lap, not awake, not responding? Or are they just curled up in a tight ball because they don't feel good and they're feeling shy and nervous, um, but otherwise looking around um, and fighting the exam? (laughs) I think, too, um, you can get um, a lot of helpful information just from your vital signs when you're checking, checking them in and knowing whether or not the exam you're seeing is in the context of like a febrile child um, versus one who's not febrile. With the like general exam, even before I like approach and get to touching distance of this child, I can also look at the outside of their ear, um, often with the help of their parents, um, or just distracting the child to get them to show me both sides of their face. Mm-hmm. And you can learn um, a lot just from that. You can tell whether or not the ear is swollen, inflamed, um, which you might worry more about like a malignant otitis externa. Not common, but um, you can get a sense of that early on. Um, you can see if there's anything draining out of the ear. So if there's otorrhea, that might um, influence your differential a bit. Um, could that be a ruptured TM? Could that be uh, otitis externa? And the other thing that is a physical exam finding that um, really sticks in your mind when you see it is if the pinna itself is um, sort of pushed forward, displaced, you worry a lot more about a complication of acute otitis media, mastoiditis. And often that kid's going to look a lot sicker, um, but you can get all of that just even before you come up to touching distance of the child. Hmm. And what makes the ear go forward with uh, mastoiditis? Yeah, I think my sense of it is is that there's, you know, edema and, like, there's also purulent fluid that's building up in a, a relatively tight space um, posterior to the ear, and all of that is ending up just pushing the, the ear structure forward. Um, and the worry is that at some point that, that space will have some breakdown and you could have extension of that infection into the skull or you could develop meningitis. Too. So osteitis. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Uh, have you seen any cases of mastoiditis? It has been a while since I've seen it, um, but I, I have seen that. Um, and I've seen it a handful of times in the clinic setting where we needed to get that child into the emergency room um, to, to be triaged with the help of ENT. And many of those kids end up getting admitted, at least for IV antibiotics. And I've seen it as a resident working on the wards um, for certain as well as we help to take care of those kids with the, that severe complication. But it's it's not as common that you see it nowadays. And I think a lot of that has to do with has to do with the immunization campaigns um, where we can protect kids against a lot of pneumococcal disease and, and haemophilus influenza um, B, um, which you know previously were causing a fair few um, ear infections, especially pneumococcal. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So I think most of these things you discuss. Well, so if it, if it is um, once you've gotten in there, mm-hmm. um, hopefully gotten the three year old to cooperate uh-huh. a little bit, yes. maybe with the dad helping the whole oh, yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. What are you expecting to see if it is acute otitis media? So you you should be able to insert a speculum into the ear canal, and it should go in with like you know relatively little pain. And if there is like exquisite pain just on that move, even before you're like looking through um, to see what you're seeing, um, that's a sign that maybe that skin in the um, external auditory canal isn't inflamed. Um, but if we're looking through an otherwise patent EAC, if we're going to see acute otitis media, I'm, I'm looking for signs of um, uh, bulging and uh, signs of inflammation. Bulging of the TM. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, and that's tricky because you're getting a two-dimensional view of a 3D structure and you're looking for that bulging, which is really, you know, changing, changing that normally flat surface of the TM to, to standing out at you. And, um, you know, our otoscopes that we have in clinic, you know, have come a long way, I'm sure, in the last 50 years, but it's not a really sophisticated um, lens that we're using. And so it requires a little bit of, I guess, not imagination, but knowledge about the anatomical landmarks. And, you know, what you're really looking for is, am I looking at like a bulging white donut that's sticking out at me? Mm-hmm. Or is it more of um, that, you know, more typical flat, shiny appearance of the TM, you know? And as far as like inflammation, certainly the bulging um, would be an indicator that there's some inflammation going on that's leading to, to build up a fluid that shouldn't be there because it's normally a air-filled space. Uh, we also look for redness and, and then looking for fluid, whether or not it's um, you know, opaque fluid or more like yellow fluid, um, which can be present. All those are potentially signs of inflammation. And it's really that bulging, though, um, that that you know, makes us think this is more acute otitis media rather than something like um, otitis media with effusion um, or eustachian tube dysfunction with like a retracted TM. And, and what's the differentiation between otitis media with effusion versus acute otitis media? So it's, I think, really um, like a distinction between like what's actually happening, but also like on physical exam, there's a couple of distinctions. And, you know, with um, what's actually happening with acute otitis media is you have likely some infectious organism, likely bacteria, that's um, leading to this like basically abscess behind the TM. And with otitis media with effusion, there's like a buildup of some inflammatory fluid, but it's not pus um, and it's not as inflammatory as you get with acute otitis media. And so you can get that almost every time you catch a cold, that there could be some fluid that builds up. 
but it doesn't mean that you have a, an ear infection necessarily. I do remember something from medical school <laughs> about this little red ball that attaches to the otoscope, yes. and I think it was like tympanostomy or something like that? Well, well, no, pneumatic... Pneumatic otoscopy. Otoscopy, Yeah, right. so that's a really helpful tool um, for assessing um, the mobility of the TM. And there may be times when a TM, like you're looking at it and you can't tell if it's bulging out at you or not. If it's bulging, like that is a clear sign that that's acute otitis media. But if you're you're wondering if what you're looking at is like a TM that has a lot of fluid that's building up behind it, you can use a pneumatic otoscopy to, to try to move the TM with the insufflation of air. So basically like a little puff of wind going in and the TM is so thin it moves quite readily and you should be able to see it move almost like if you are banging on a window <laughs> if the the um oto, the pneumatic otoscope um blows that puff of air in if you're not seeing the movement you either don't have a good seal because air is leaking back out or there's enough fluid building up that it just won't move normally and especially in little kids their TMs are really compliant and you should be able to to see it move quite a bit you know, I use that metaphor of like banging on a window, but it's actually more like almost imagining um, saran wrap and someone turning on a vacuum and like watching it like move in real time. I like yeah. that analogy. So yeah, it can be it can be really striking. The other thing you have to worry about, we've been talking a lot about bulging, is if that TM's not moving normally, and especially if you've had any signs of otorrhea or fluid in the canal or draining ear, your worry might be that there's a ruptured TM, and the reason that it's not moving is that the air is just passing through into the middle ear. So the pneumatic otoscope is kind of tricky to, to learn to work, but if you can practice it, um, it's a really helpful, low-tech, pretty reliable tool for helping to distinguish between is there a ruptured TM, is this acute otitis media, even though I'm not seeing the clear bulging, it can tell you a lot of helpful information. And I know this isn't just about physical diagnosis, but picking that right size of the speculum helps a lot, too. In terms of creating enough vacuum in the canal exactly right yeah you want to be able to create a seal if you can and you can actually get um speculums that have a rubber tip that flexes a little bit but also allows you to kind of create that seal so it's like a ridge on the tip of the speculum but short of having that picking the the largest speculum that will fit into the canal is the best approach and i find often learners and even more seasoned providers might pick a smaller speculum because it feels kinder to uh-huh. <laughs> to not jam a large speculum in there but um, even kids that are over the over 12 months can often tolerate one of the larger speculums and you just you know insert like gently at first and see what you can get but it really does help not only add more light to what you're seeing because more light will come through that speculum um, but also it can help if you're going to use the, the pneumatic otoscopy. Hmm. And does that actually hurt if they have acute otitis media, the, the little puff of the air, puff of that air? You blow in there? It seems like it would. <laughs> so I, I think that it it can, but generally it doesn't. And I think most of what is experienced is anxiety um, because it feels weird. Um, so I try when I'm approaching them and I've you know tried to get them in the right position. Um, if I'm going to bring in the insufflator, um, I'll, I'll just like 
puff it onto my hand first to show them that it doesn't hurt, and then I'll um, blow a couple puffs onto their face or to their hand so they can see that it just doesn't like feel like it's going to hurt at all. If they had bullous meringitis, where that TM itself is really inflamed by the infection, that would be very tender with insufflation, potentially. Oh, any, so, so that potentially helps with the diagnosis of bullous meningitis. I think if they were jumping off of the table with the insufflation, it might increase my suspicion. But there's pretty typical findings you see on the TM as well, including what looks almost like vesicles or blisters like sticking out at you from the TM surface, um, rather than more of like a uniform bulging. Mm-hmm. And what ca- did we mention this? What causes bullous meningitis? So, you know, typically with bullous meringitis um, that's acute bullous meringitis, it tends to be the same organism that's causing the middle ear infection. And so that could be strep, that could be haemophilus. But also, um, if they're cultured, sometimes you grow group A strep or staph aureus. And there's also this sort of like long-standing theory that mycoplasma is a bacteria that might lead to bullous meringitis, and so much so that some practitioners really swear by using azithromycin to treat those types of ear infections mm. rather than one of our more traditional choices for treating a middle ear infection. But I, to my knowledge, I don't know that um, science has really settled that. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. You think they'd be able to cultured out of it. I mean yeah and I think what they've cultured is is less of mycoplasma and more of those other organisms so it might um, be a little bit of clinical lore it could something. be yeah and it's important to know because the zithromycin just isn't as good um, for treating those the more, other more, more typical organisms uh-huh. you know the other organisms I didn't mention there are the viruses and certainly um, respiratory viruses themselves can cause the middle ear infection Um, potentially could cause uh, a meringitis too. So meringitis is one of those diagnoses that I feel like really stands out to me, but not because it's common. It's more that it's such a dramatic presentation and it's so exquisitely uncomfortable for the the patient. Good to know. And Mm -hmm. once again, a a more visible, so I think a lot lot of what you've described is visible, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of like, you know, Mm -hmm. you can't diagnose Oscar with a CT scan. Speaking of which, Mm -hmm. couldn't we have just gone to some kind of scan? I mean, you know, we're doing 85 million CT scans a year in the United States now, and and it's spread across. Everybody blames the emergency department, but it's actually internal medicine and neurology and pediatrics and a lot of critical care teams. Um, There's no scans you could just order in radiology and send a kid off to... You can you can always place that order. I wouldn't do it though, <laughs> mostly because we know that it's not necessary. And that being said, you're going to potentially find things that you weren't looking for. Um, and of course, there's a, the risk for radiation exposure. And, and with peds, we try as much as we can to to avoid lots of radiation exposure. They've got a lifetime ahead of them, and um, you don't want to start early with <laughs> radiation exposure. But it's also challenging because a CT or those advanced imaging can tell you so much when the patient may not be able to tell you with their words as much of what's going on. So I can understand the temptation. (laughs) Uh Yeah, I saw something somewhere that they think 2% of cancers by the year 2050 will have Mm -hmm. been as the result of radiologic studies, Mm -hmm. which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. It really is, yeah, and I think, you know, always considering what it is that we're doing to our patients that might be causing the problems is important. I think, too, like, uh, you know, there are scenarios where 
a kid with an ear infection will need a CT scan. And that, again, is that child with mastoiditis. Mm -hmm. Maybe the surgical team who's going to help manage it needs to know where the infection starts and stops. Um, And obviously, um, for a kiddo who's got a severe headache um, and looks more toxic, that you're worried that uh, ear infection or uh, mastoiditis has led to meningitis, the CT scan can be really helpful for characterizing that. Mm -hmm. Like if you had... A choice between MRI and CT scan. Is it still CT scan the better study because you're looking at the bone back there? That's my understanding. And I'm no expert when it comes to those two imaging modalities Uh um, for the the more complicated, um, you know, head and neck infections. But to my knowledge, it is that we really want to see what's going on with the bone. And the CT scan helps a ton with that. The other thing to bear in mind is for an MRI, a kid has to lay really still for a really long time, and that might um, involve requiring sedation and the risks that come along with that. So sort of a complicated question to, to answer, mm-hmm. and it's going to vary by, by kid because of their age um, and um, their risk profile. Yeah. yeah, so it sounds like CT is probably CT is yeah. the way most people are going to go, at I least think initially. So. And, yeah, that's what I've seen. MRI later, maybe with sedation. Right. Um, and earlier, so actually, just to stick with the common things again, so contrast what you just described that you would expect to see here with mm-hmm. this kid mm-hmm. with otitis externa, which you mm-hmm. cited as being one of the most common causes of ear pain after mm-hmm. acute otitis. Media. Right, right. Well, I think in a more severe case, you'd see like redness and swelling of the outer ear. The pinna might look quite swollen even even before, and that would be otitis um, uh, malignant otitis externa. You know, if this is more of your just like run-of-the-mill swimmer's year, otitis externa, you can often tell just as soon as you put the speculum in <laughs> that the kid is jumping and that their their external auditory canal is inflamed and um, and that's hurting them. As you, you know, if the child will cooperate and let you look in further, um, as you slowly insert the speculum, because at that point I'm, you know, very gently advancing the speculum, you can look at the wall um, as you're as you're going towards the the middle ear and and note like redness, discharge, granulation, and sometimes like you might also see like oh like there's a little like pimply looking lesion here. Um, and maybe um, maybe that otitis externa isn't from like swimming exposure. Maybe there was some like little boil that developed, or maybe this is a kiddo with eczema who just scratched and scratched and mm-hmm. scratched, or jammed a Q-tip into their ear, and that led to a defect in the skin that then got infected. Um, mm-hmm. So you're looking for like little individual lesions, but in general, a dimitous red lining of the the canal. Interestingly, you can even see that granulation on the surface of the TM in some cases because it's continuous with the skin. So you you might think like, oh, this seems like an otitis externa, like there's the otorrhea, the swimming history that makes me think that it could be there. But I'm looking at the TM and it doesn't look gray and translucent. It might have like a almost like kind of frosted appearance to it. But that can just be the same um, otitis externa that's affecting that surface of the TM. In general, when you see a kid with otitis externa, do they have a history of something like it's summertime, they've been swimming a lot, or they're on a swim team, or whatever? Almost always, yes. And if they don't, I really have to pause and wonder, like, um, has this kid had other soft tissue skin infections, and do they have, like, an immunodeficiency that that might cause that? Um, Because it's almost always that there is swimming or some other extended water exposure. 
And, you know, even if they don't spend a ton of time in the water, if they're doing things after they get out of the water that lead to that water staying retained in their ears, mm -hmm. maybe they pop their earbuds in and, you know, fall asleep listening to music for a couple hours, that's going to potentially lead to the same kind of circumstances needed for a, a external uh, ear infection to develop. Mm -hmm. But most commonly, it's that they've been in the, the pool or like more fresh water all day mm -hmm. for days and days and days. Got it. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier about potentially if there was some child abuse going on, mm -hmm. trauma, um, any clues you'd see on the physical exam for that? Yeah, I think, you know, with the more like external exam, bruising would, would be something that you'd want to note. And it's really uncommon for kids who aren't engaging in wrestling or some sort of really intense contact sport to have a bruise on their outer ear. So especially in a, a infant or toddler, seeing that bruising on the ear would be a, a real red flag. Um, and of course that could lead to ear pain. With the, the more like sort of middle ear inspection um, with the otoscope, if you see something like a hemotympanum, which is blood behind the TM, um, you really have to take pause and think to yourself, wow, this could be a sign of some blunt trauma that's happened. And of course, if there's a, a mechanism that explains that, maybe they were in a car accident, um, maybe there was some other accident that happened, that could certainly explain it. But in the absence of that kind of explanation that's clear and observable, you'd worry about the possibility that this child was, was abused. Mm -hmm. and, I remember this clue from, this is probably more from trauma surgery in mm -hmm. medical school, but if there's CSF draining out of the ear, mm -hmm. then that might be a basal or skull fracture. Yeah, from the ear or from the nose. So, you know, when you get that um, fluid um, draining from either of those um, places, it makes you wonder about whether or not that kind of skull fracture has happened. And without a, like, preceding trauma history, uh, accidental trauma history, like, either of those things would be really concerning for a severe um, non-accidental trauma. Mm -hmm. So you'd want to, you know, make sure that child is safe, um, uh, but be looking for other signs um, that could corroborate that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, in terms of getting back to mastoiditis mm -hmm. again, because I know that sort of a, seems like kind of a, I guess that falls into that we didn't talk about can't miss diagnosis. Yes, yeah. But I guess that would be one of them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, mastoiditis, um, you don't want to miss. And, and I think that, you know, we're fortunate in the sense that it can, if you know where to look, it's hard to miss. And if you know where to feel, it's hard to miss. And so, you know, they're, they're going to, I think, you know, pretty much every time have an ear infection that started it, um, but they're going to have tenderness over their mastoid. And then I mentioned how often, like, you'll see that the ear is actually displaced forward um, if it's progressed quite a bit. So, you know, the ear exam is not just limited to, to using your otoscope. You want to make sure that you're observing and um, palpating um, behind the, the pinna itself, too, over the mastoid. So it's not just, so it's observation, palpation, yes. and then inspection with yes. your, your yes. otoscope. Yeah, and you know, people will be like irritable when they have an ear infection, so they might not like you pushing on them, but again, if they're really jumping off of the table, um, then then you'd, you'd worry a bit more. And a kid like that is also like, I think more likely to have headache as part of their constellation of symptoms. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> happily, <laughs> this this child did not have any signs of bruising in the ear canal. The, mm -hmm. uh, the external auditory canal looked fine, mm -hmm. uh, but what the examiner saw was basically a dull tympanic membrane with poor mobility. They did not do nomadic 
a toscopy. I don't mm-hmm. know how often you feel like it sh- should be done, maybe mm-hmm. every time or, or not. But and uh, there was a dull TM. There mm-hmm. was an effusion, mm-hmm. uh, fairly inflamed-looking. Um, and and that, those were ba- the basic. Uh, I don't know if they did, they didn't describe it as a donut. Uh, uh-huh. the term being kind of a, a bulging donut. Uh-huh. I love that uh, yeah. food analogy. Mm-hmm. But did did they need to do pneumatic otoscopy if it was sort of more history was consistent? exam of the TM was consistent? I think if you have it available to you, you should use it, but it's not required. I think in this case, you know, to make that diagnosis of acute otitis media, you're looking for some sign of inflammation and a history of fever and really like clearly that this is otalgia and often a three-year-old can, can help you zero in on that. Those count as signs of inflammation, even if there's not that bulging appearance. And I think that for, for most providers, that would be enough to go on to say like, this is acute otitis media and you don't have to, to do the insufflation in that case. Yeah. And I, I think for our, our, our listeners um, who are interested in this topic, Nelson's, I'm trying to remember the name of the book now, Nelson's pediatric symptom-based diagnosis, um, which maybe we should call PSBD. We have the Symptoms and Diagnosis podcast, which is excellent, by the way. I know you've listened to a couple of those by Adam Seafew and Scott Stern at University of Chicago, but maybe we should call this pediatric uh, symptom-based textbook PSBD. Mm -hmm. But PSBD has um, some really nice charts where they break up causes of otalgia by the middle ear, then the external ear and canal. Um, And then also there's this long list of referred type things that can cause pain in the ear. Yeah, I think like they also classify it as, you know, the intrinsic and the extrinsic causes. Mm -hmm. And on that extrinsic um, list of causes, there are so many different structures in the head and neck that can lead to referred pain either in or around the ear. And and, you know, when you look at that list, there's a fair few of those things that are quite common. And so um, having an extrinsic cause of um, ear pain that's like referred ear pain is definitely a, a common thing. And I think it comes down to like what we were talking earlier about how that ear tugging really isn't specific for, uh-huh. for acute otitis media because there are so many things that can make you just like sort of experience ear discomfort especially as a child. <laughs> this is sort of a, a little bit of a random into the weeds question, but mm-hmm. what what things have you pulled out of kids' ears when they've had foreign bodies in there? Yeah, so I think the most common things are beads. And in my like anecdotal experience, it tends to be the bright, shiny, colorful beads that we end up pulling out of ears and noses. I don't know what it is about... Um, that, you know, like glitter and shininess that makes them want to put it inside their body. You'd think they want to have it to look at. But um, yeah, beads is a common one. And I think the food is really common as well. And so classically, that'll be something like a bean, a legume. And when you approach the potential legume (laughs) in the ear, you want to be really careful about like what that is, because if you're worried it's wax, you might try to wash it out. Um, and there's actually this phenomenon that can happen where if you add water to a legume, it'll oh, swell. Wow. And then you might end up with, you know, not only worse otalgia, but a real difficult time extracting the foreign body. So you have to have that, you know, index of suspicion, but go back to the history about like, when did this happen? Was it meal time? What were you eating? Um, sometimes what was your last meal is a really, really helpful <laughs> um, history question for, for kids. 
And as far as like other things, it's, it's really um, surprising how often that you might see an insect in an ear. <laughs> so kids either like find the insect, put it in their ear, or just finds their way into their ear and they just can't get it out. Um, so I wouldn't say it's like incredibly common, but it's on that list of more common objects that end up getting pulled out of ears. Things that go into ears that don't stay in ears would be more like a Q-tip, and that's a real common thing for older kids. Mm -hmm. I'm sure adults too, um, where you end up with an ear pain, ear pain complaint that resulted from using a Q-tip going in too far, um, causing some trauma to the eardrum or just to the canal itself. Huh, interesting. Yeah. This is probably too much information. It's more adult, not mm -hmm. peds, but mm -hmm. a colleague of mine who's a primary care physician in San Francisco was once seeing this woman in her like 30s or 40s, and she was a horseback rider mm -hmm. type person, and she, she got thrown by a horse mm -hmm. and landed on her side and came in to see him a few days later because she'd lost some of her hearing in mm -hmm. her right ear. And, of course, he got the history. He was really worried that something bad had happened. Mm -hmm. She had, I don't know, a subarachnoid bleed or something like that since she's fallen off a horse. And when he looked in there, there was a rock lodged oh. way oh. <laughs> Somehow, when she'd fallen, mm -hmm. this rock had ended up in her ear. Mm -hmm. I actually have it. He gave it to me. It's oh. a little, little uh, tube in my office. I'll show it to you later. Gotcha. When I think of ear stones, I think more of the, uh, the inner ear <laughs> and right. the structures with the inner ear. But... That sounds really, really painful. You know, one thing I didn't mention on that list is like the earwax itself um, can sometimes be uh, an irritant or cause pain um, mm -hmm. to kids. And, you know, earwax is a totally normal phenomenon. Um, some parents worry about how much wax is there and how do we need to, to clean the ears out. But ears are pretty pretty self-cleaning um, as long as you're, you're bathing and allowing water to also like help with getting the wax out. But some people, the wax is just thicker, it gets drier, and it can really cause some discomfort. And a lot of times kids will be digging in their ear just because of that itchiness or discomfort from the earwax itself. So getting, getting well-versed in how to, to manage that at home or with irrigation in your office, or if uh, you have an ENT colleague upstairs, maybe they can use some of their, their suction um, uh, that it. they have available to them. Uh -huh. At this point, we've made the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. The kid has acute otitis media, and the dad is like, yeah, that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so in terms of next steps management, um, how would you educate the dad about expectations, sort of in terms of counseling, and how would you treat the kid? So I would always want to approach the like counseling with coming back to what they thought it was. And in this case, you know, the dad said, I thought it was an ear infection. <laughs> so I'd frame it as, you know, it looks like you were right. This is a, this is an ear infection. And I would want to make sure we revisit again, whether or not there's been ear infections before. Um, so if they have specific experience with it, we can build off of that prior experience in terms of framing the expectations. But if this is the first time it's happened to this kid, I'd emphasize how common it is um, and how treatable it is and that the treatment doesn't work instantaneously. And, and so how I would treat them is in this case for a kiddo who's got a pretty significant fever and I can't remember if they had like, you know, disrupted sleep related to the ear Wake, pain. Waking up yeah, yeah, like really significant otalgia. I would say those are more severe symptoms. And even though he's a three-year-old, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, I think I would end up treating with antibiotics um, given the signs of inflammation and the, the clear finding on exam that he's he's got an ear infection. And 
I think that what's important is like with the antibiotics, it typically helps within 48 to 72 hours. But for those first two days after the antibiotics are started, a parent might doubt whether or not this is the right choice of antibiotic, um, whether it's working. And so while you're waiting for the antibiotics to really kick in and treat that infection, you want to make sure that treatment also includes uh, anti-inflammatory analgesic like ibuprofen and also making sure that you give real clear signs of what to watch out for in terms of worsening symptoms. So that ibuprofen will help keep the fever down, so keep them calmer, help with the pain um, while you're waiting for the antibiotic to, to kick in. And for kiddos who don't improve within 48 to 72 hours, I do ask that they follow up, that we recheck the, the ear to make sure that things look like they're not worsening um, or looking for more of a complication, especially if like fever is continuing and mm -hmm. symptoms are worsening. We worry about like, mastoiditis now or something like that. And and I think that we we know from what the common organisms are that, that cause these ear infections that uh, antibiotic like amoxicillin is going to treat them, especially if we dose it correctly and we treat them for long enough. And for a kid this age who's three years old, we might aim for more like, you know, seven, five, seven days of antibiotics for younger kids, like especially under two, more like 10 days um, to really fully eradicate the bacteria. Oh, okay. Are there any studies going on that you know of to do shorter courses of antibiotics? Yeah, so it's it's been studied, and I, I think I've heard um, some advocating for, for, especially with older kids and uncomplicated infections, um, aiming more for like three to five days. I can't remember what the data show exactly about that. And so I think it's still recommended five to, to seven days. Um, unless they're under two. And unless they're under two. And then your risk for treatment failure is just higher. And the reasons for that, I have plenty of guesses, but I don't know exactly why that's the case. And I'm sure some of it has to do with it's hard to get antibiotics into kids who are under two years old and get it to stay in once it's in. I think the other thing is that they are more you know, prone to developing ear infections. Um, part of that is that the eustachian tube is shorter. Um, it's more of a horizontal position compared to adults where it's more apt to draining. And I have to wonder if those predisposing factors to developing the ear infection may also play a role in why it's longer for them to, to recover and why they might need more antibiotics while things are draining adequately. Got it. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, Eric, just wrapping up, mm -hmm. um, what kind of two or three take-home points do you have about uh, otalgia ear pain that we can give to our listeners? Well, I think point number one kind of brings us back home to, like, you know, common things being common and what ended up happening in that first case. So we talked about lots of interesting causes of ear pain and emphasized that you have to have a, a broad differential diagnosis because um, you don't want to miss some of these more rare things but that you know, acute otitis media is very common in pediatric patients. And the things that make it common continue to be problems, upper respiratory infections. And, and so I think that that is a key take-home point, is that um, it should be towards the top of your differential. And to, to make that diagnosis, point number two, is that regardless of how frightened that child seems of you and your physical exam, it is so important um, to do a really good thorough HEENT exam with the focus on the ear exam so that you can make an accurate diagnosis since we talked about how many of the um, physical exam findings and visual diagnosis are key to distinguishing between acute otitis media, otitis externa, or um, just more of your otitis media with effusion. 
Excellent. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been a load of fun and brought back all kinds of good memories. I almost went into pediatrics, believe it or not. <laughs> but I, the screaming part mm-hmm. of the kids uh, pitting them down, licking their ears, just didn't appeal to me all that much. Well, it it doesn't doesn't get any easier. But I guess I guess over time, like you you kind of you find little strategies that help with like turning the the sobs into like just more wariness. <laughs> Give them a lot of lollipops. Yeah. yeah, and if I if I in, exit an exam room and, with a toddler or I've had to do an ear exam and there's no crying that happens during that exam, as soon as I leave the room and I've exited, I definitely do a silent fist bump because that is just or a fist <laughs> pump that is just like a that's an accomplishment every time. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot Eric for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Coming into this podcast today, you heard you 2 doing the song One, and exiting this podcast, of course, we mostly talked about kids today, so you've got to have a classic, which needs no introduction, and I'm sure you'll recognize it. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about the UCD 43, a list of common chief complaints, and how to address those, Just go to www.ucd43.com and go to the page, What is the UCD 43? If you scroll down, you'll find some superb podcasts from the S2D, Symptom to Diagnosis podcast series by Adam Seafew and Scott Stern from the University of Chicago, based on their textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis. There'll be more podcasts about the UCD 43 coming from us here. And you can stay tuned. We'll average about one podcast every four to eight weeks. Have a great day, everyone, and thanks for listening to Mount Lion. Off the magic dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanali. Little Jackie Paper. Loved that rascal off and brought him strings and sealing wax and other fancy stuff. Oh, off the magic dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called
make way for other toys. One gray night it happened, Jackie Paper came no more, and Puff, that mighty dragon, he ceased his fearless roar. His head was bent in sorrow, green scales fell like rain. Mr.